This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. This morning we'll be looking at verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Page 823 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 18, verse 15. Hear the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray for your grace and the leading of your Holy Spirit as we give our attention to your word this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that it might be food for our souls today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But what if someone sins against you? What if someone sins against me? You see, that's the question that logically follows what Jesus has been talking about to his disciples that we've just seen, saw last week, in the first part of Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus teaches his disciples humility, that they should be like that little child that he holds up before them. It says, unless they become like this little child, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's not so much a position of innocence, which none of us has, but a position of humility, not clamoring for greatness, but uh, humbling ourselves, particularly in light of our sins, uh, before one another, and most of all, before God, humbling ourselves to recognize our need of Christ, to be our Savior, to be our righteousness. But then Jesus goes on to talk about sin in the world, temptation in the world, and pronounces a woe, pronounces a curse on anyone who should be the instrument of leading another brother or sister in Christ into sin. The danger of that. And of course, dealing not only with the prospect of leading another into sin, but first dealing with our own sin and the severity, the seriousness with which we should take dealing with sin in our own lives, as Jesus indicates there in 
uh, verses 8 and 9, where he speaks in hyperbole that it's better to cut off a hand or an eye or a foot that's causing us to sin and enter heaven than to enter hell whole with all our, with both hands, with our, both our feet and so forth. But he's speaking here about the danger of, of enticing or leading or coercing a brother or sister in Christ into sin. And so we take due warning of that. We want to be careful in our interactions with one another, that the way we interact promotes righteousness, promotes holiness, that we encourage one another in obedience, not enticing or leading or coercing one another into sin. But what if I'm the one who's been sinned against? What if someone has done something to me? And Jesus picks up that question now. What if you are the party that has been harmed, that has been hurt? What then? Well, Jesus picks up that question here in the passage before us. Now, in this fallen world that we live in, even as Christians, it's inevitable that this is going to happen. It's not a matter so much of if, but when. So Jesus is bringing that out here, this reality that because we sin, uh, because we may say something, because we may do something to harm another, or in this case, because someone else may say something, someone else may do something or not do something that hurts me, that offends me, uh, that causes me grief or that makes me angry, whatever it might be, Jesus sets before us here uh, a way of dealing with that, sets before us some considerations that we need to understand so that we know how to respond. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus gives us a process to follow. He gives us a process to follow when, when someone sins against me. And notice, it is a Christian. Verse uh, 15, if your brother sins against you. Now, some of you children are thinking, yeah, now my brother sins against me all the time. Well, it could be a literal brother. But the point here is it's a Christian brother, and certainly by extension, or sister. The point is it's another believer. This is, this is an offense that takes place against you within the Christian community. And Jesus gives us a process to follow here that, as, you, as we read it, certainly follow it easily enough. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But first we need to say that it is a difficult process. It is simple, but it's not easy. It is a difficult process. After all, it's much easier to talk about someone than it is to talk to someone who has done something that has offended us or done something that's hurt me. It's much easier to talk about that person to someone else. You know what so-and-so said? You know what so-and-so did? Can you believe that? We really ought to pray for him. But you know what he did to me? You know, sometimes we do that under the guise of prayer requests. It's called gossip. It's sin. The Bible condemns it. You need to be very careful. I do think it's possible to talk about something that happened in a context where it's not gossip, where it is genuinely seeking uh, to make a situation better. But we need to be very, very careful because notice how Jesus puts it here, that it is something that is to be private. But the fact is it is difficult. It's much better, although harder, to talk to someone. When someone has done something that has disturbed you, bothered you, hurt you, it's better, difficult as it may be, to go directly to that person. It's better to be forthright and direct than it is simply 
to put it off. Well, let's think just a minute. Suppose we didn't do that. Suppose someone did something that angered you, and instead of going to the person, you follow another option. What other options are there? Well, you could pretend nothing happened and perhaps just allow bitterness to build within you. You can just be angry at the person and never do anything to try to resolve or remove that anger. Uh, Also, maybe you would avoid the person, which creates a rift in the fellowship of a church, and certainly in the the body of Christ, where now this person is someone you want nothing to do with and are not willing to go to the person. Uh, You can try to manipulate the situation. This is the stuff of sitcoms, where instead of directly addressing or dealing with a problem, you try to work around it. You know, and it's, it's the, the classic sitcoms are, are built on this. You know, I love Lucy, Andy Griffith. Somebody messes up. You know, Lucy blows it. And instead of going to, to her husband and saying, you know, I really messed up. I feel so horrible about this. Will you please forgive me? She goes to great lengths to cover it up, to make sure he doesn't know. And in the end, he does anyway. And it, you know, the whole thing just collapses. Well, we do that sometimes. Instead of just being direct and forthright, going to someone and even just saying, you know, what you what you did or what you said really hurt me. Uh, we go to great lengths to just try to manipulate the situation, pretend like it didn't happen, all of this, these kinds of things. Uh, I do want to add here, by the way, that we need to be careful because people do things that do genuinely hurt us. But sometimes we just are, we just choose to be offended. And I really do think that being offended or not very often is a choice you make. People can do things that are offensive, but sometimes they don't mean any offense by it. But some people are quick to take offense at the slightest thing, assume the worst. Where, in fact, the person may have meant no offense whatsoever, you know, just a case of foot and mouth, or they honestly didn't know that what they did hurt you. And yet we sometimes just choose to, to be offended, to be upset, when we could have chosen not to, to just let it go by uh, without really making the choice to be upset and offended. It's difficult. And let me say this, too, before we move on and actually look at the, the, the process. Um, if someone does come to you uh, and, and tells you that something you did hurt them or offended them, resist that initial impulse to lash out. They are doing the right thing. And it is at least as hard for them to come and tell you that as it is for you to hear that. And your initial reaction is to be defensive or to, to get angry at that person or throw something back at them you know about them. Don't do that. He's doing the right thing. She's doing the right thing and coming to you and saying, this hurt, this, this, this uh, offended me or whatever it might be, this disappointed me. So be aware of that. Uh, be glad that they're doing that because they are biblically doing the right thing. So it is a difficult process, but it is also a redemptive process. The purpose in doing this is to reclaim someone. And this is where we need to examine our hearts, whether it's that first step of going to someone who has sinned against you or acting as a church, to watch our hearts. The intention here is not to incriminate. It's not to punish. It's not to retaliate. It is to reclaim. If someone has sinned against you and you go to that person, you're not going to throw it in their face. You're going to let them know that a break has happened in the body of Christ, in the relationship, and that this has happened. Now, there's some textual question here whether it should just be if your brother sins 
go and tell him. Or if your brother sins against you. It may be that someone is involved in some sin, whether against you directly or not, and you become aware of it, and you need to go and talk to that person. Again, the point is not to be accusatory. The point is that they would repent and repent of the sin if it's something general or, or, or repent and ask your forgiveness if you are the one that they have sinned against. So the purpose is to reclaim, to bring them back. For that reason, because it's redemptive, it must be done in humility. If you are going to talk to someone who has sinned against you or is caught in some sin generally, remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Or to put it in other terms that I think Jesus meant, first take that two-by-four plank out of your own eye, and then you can remove the little speck of sawdust from your brother's eye or your sister's eye. So it is a redemptive process. The purpose is to reclaim. We go in humility Dealing with our own sin first, mindful of our own sinfulness first, and the times that we have hurt other people, even as we go to talk to someone who has hurt us. But also along the lines of it being a redemptive process, we need to be careful. Must be done carefully. Remember what we read earlier in uh, Galatians chapter uh, 6, verse 1, where Paul says, if someone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Tempted to be involved in the same sin that person is, maybe. But maybe also just tempted to be angry, tempted to be vindictive, tempted to be self-righteous, tempted to be harsh. You know, it's easy for the person confronting the sinner to wind up in sin himself or even to be sinful in the way that he approaches the person who is caught in a transgression, as Paul puts it here. But it's also a progressive process, and now we want to look at these particular steps. We've seen that it's difficult. It is It is redemptive. The purpose is to bring the person back into relationship with Christ, back into relationship with you. But it's a progressive process, step-by-step, step, incremental. Uh, so let's look at these steps. Uh, verse 15 If your brother sins against you, or if he's caught in some sin that may not affect you directly, but nevertheless is not something a believer should be involved in, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice it's specific. Go and tell him his fault. Tell him exactly what it is that has hurt you. Don't just go and say, you know, you really ticked me off. Just everything about you bugs me. (laughs) It's not general, it's specific. Go and tell him his fault. What was it that he said? What was it that she did that disturbed you or that angered you or that hurt you? So it's specific. It's also private. Jesus is quite particular about this. Between you and him alone. If someone has hurt you, make a phone call, make an appointment. It doesn't involve other people. Just you and that person, and go talk to them and tell them what has happened. They may be aware of it. It may have been intentional. They may have had no idea that what they said or did or didn't say or do hurt you, uh, that it bothered you. They may be totally surprised by that. But you go in private because the point is to keep it as limited as possible, as few people as possible to know about it at each step. 
And so Jesus says, be specific. Tell him his fault. It's private between you and him alone. Now, this reflects the passage we read from Leviticus 19, verse 17, where we read, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, that really echoes, or I should say Paul echoes, what that is teaching when he writes in Galatians 6. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. How frequently we do that. You know, that person did something that, that made me angry, that, that, that hurt me, and I'm just going to be angry at that person. That's far too common, far too human, and unfortunately far too common in the church, just to be angry at the person rather than address it. But Leviticus says, don't hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, openly, clearly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Lest you just become a bitter and angry person and unloving toward that person. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. When you just when you refuse to talk to the person, but just become angry at him or her, you are sinning. And God sees that sin. You are furthering a breach in the church, a, a, a breach among brothers or sisters in Christ. An extremely relevant verse there from Leviticus 19.17. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, or as Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Listen there, not just in the sense of heard you, but responds when you confront him about the sin. And says, you know, you're absolutely right. And I, I've been so wrong, or I, you know, I said that and I regretted it, and I'm glad you confronted me because I want to apologize to you. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And by the way, if you were the confronted party, uh, and someone, you know, acknowledges that, you forgive. Say it. Say, I forgive you. Or ask, will you please forgive me? Be specific. I apologize. I hurt you. Please forgive me. And if that happens, you've gained your brother. It's dealt with. It's over. There's no need to spread it, no need to tell another person. It's, it's covered. You've gained your brother. The relationship is restored. Things are what they should be. But if not, and sometimes that's not the case, Jesus goes on then to say in verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that's taking on a little higher level of formality, isn't it? That's almost uh, ominous language, that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. And Jesus is referring there to Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, when Jesus says, take one or two others along with you, inciting that, it's not so much that they have to be witnesses to the sin that was originally committed. The point is, they come along as witnesses to this second level of of confrontation. They come along to add force to the testimony you bring against the sin of that person. Again, uh, whether it's sin committed against you directly or sin you may be aware of that this person is involved in, whatever that might be. And so by bringing another person or two along, you're, you're ratcheting up the stakes a little bit. Now, it's still relatively private, but a couple of other people know. 
And when you meet with that person, there are others adding to your voice their persuasion to appeal to this person, either to repent of the, the injury they have done to the, to the wounded party or to turn away from this sin that they are involved in. Now, Jesus doesn't give any kind of time frame here. How long should it be before you determine you haven't won your brother over and you ask one or two others to accompany you in that? Well, he doesn't say, and that's a judgment call. That requires wisdom. It requires prayer. It requires sensitivity. And yet this is the process that Jesus gave to follow, to ask one or two trusted, mature people, people who can keep confidences. Can you keep a secret? And they say, yes. You say, good, I can too. Uh, not going to tell them. People who are not out talking, you know, spread it out in the community. Um, those are the kinds of people that you would invite mature believers to come alongside and to confront. Now, again, Jesus doesn't say it, but if the person does respond in repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, it ends. That's, that's all there needs to be to it. But if not, uh, Jesus then says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. Now, I don't think Jesus had in mind there an uh, email uh, circular sent out to every member of the congregation. Uh, I do think that it is to be brought to the attention of the church in a more official capacity. It's to be brought to the church to be addressed by the church. Now, in our context... Uh, that would that would mean essentially bringing it to the elders, bringing it to the session, uh, whom the church has delegated uh, the task of leading the church and making those kinds of, of decisions and even judicial process if necessary, but bringing it before the church so that the church itself can begin to act in addressing this person in this sin. And so in our case, this would mean that you would come to one of our elders or come to me and say, you know, as a session, this needs to be addressed. You know, I've talked to this person and, uh, you know, I took this person and that person and we went and talked to this person and it's only gotten worse or they're just being more uh, vicious toward me uh, or whatever it might be. And it now becomes a matter for the session. It now becomes a matter for the church to address in a more official capacity. Now, that's raised the stakes considerably. And as a church session, we would meet with the person, we would talk to the person, uh, and appeal to them to repent, appeal to them to uh, turn from their sin, to be reconciled, if, if that's the need. Uh, but, it's, but, but then it comes to the point, as Jesus goes on to say, that if they still refuse, if they won't listen to the church, if they will not respond to the session's uh, words and actions, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, in a Jewish context, a Gentile was someone outside the covenant community. Someone on the outside. A tax collector was someone uh, actually in social environments who, who was basically avoided as much as possible. Jesus is talking in our terms what we would describe as excommunication, someone placed outside the covenant community. Now, as a session and following our book of church order, we have a series of incremental processes there of discipline if it comes to that, including maybe a formal admonishment, including possibly being suspended from the Lord's table, 
uh, until repentance is there. But if there is not response to those measures of discipline, then someone actually being excommunicated. And what that means is the church renders an official decision that because this person refuses to repent of sin, the church ultimately has no choice but to conclude, based on the evidence, that their heart is not regenerate and therefore they are not a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is a repenter. We repent daily for sin in our own life. If someone should come to you and confront you about sin in your life, you repent of it. You turn from it. Hard as that may be, you say, you're right. I've sinned against you and against the Lord. I repent. But if someone's living in sin, there's no repentance. There's no uh, effort even to struggle against that sin. No expression of repentance. Then the church has no choice ultimately but to conclude they're dealing with someone whose heart is not regenerate. Therefore, they are not a Christian. Therefore, they have no place in the church. They should be placed outside the church. Placed back into the world. You know, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 uh, talks about this man who is in sin. and talks about handing him over to Satan. So that though his body might be destroyed, his soul might be saved. And what's he saying? He's saying because this man is sinning in this way, he should be given back to Satan, put back out of the church, back into the world with the hope that he might see the seriousness of his sin. If indeed he is a Christian, if indeed he is actually regenerate but just persisting in sin, that he might see the seriousness of it and be saved and repent of it and turn from it. So even excommunication ultimately is in hopes of reclaiming the church. Certainly I can't. Our elders don't see the heart the way God does, but we see the evidence. And even when a church excommunicates someone, all they're saying ultimately is based on this behavior, we have to render this person to be outside the church. We have to conclude that they're not demonstrating behavior consistent with a regenerate heart. They're not saying with absolute certainty the heart's not regenerate. They're just saying they're, they're demonstrating non-Christian behavior persistently and over a period of time, and therefore we have to judge them essentially to be a non-Christian and put them out of the church in the hopes that they either might be converted if they're not a Christian and be welcomed back into the church as a new believer, or if they are a believer and their heart is regenerate, but they're just persisting in sin, that God would use that action to impress on them the dire seriousness of their situation that they might repent and be welcomed back, brought back into the church. The desire is always to be reclaimed, to be brought back, to be restored. So that is the process that Jesus gives. It's a process that we are to follow. But then very briefly here, he gives us some promises to remember. Because that's a difficult thing. Anytime you deal with people, whether one-to-one on that level, or as a small group, or as a session, it's hard. You're dealing with someone's life. And it's hard. Well, Jesus gives us some promises here to remember. Verse 18, the promise of heavenly authority for the church. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember, Jesus spoke those words to Peter when he said, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and to the other disciples. Well, here he explicitly indicates to his church, to the disciples, that they are synchronized with heaven when they act according to this process, when they act with a sensitivity to Christ and his word, that they're acting with the authority of heaven itself. 
That's why you can't just say, well, church discipline doesn't matter. And it's hard to enforce in our day. The person who has been excommunicated in one congregation may be welcomed down the street with loving arms and warm embraces. Uh, and yet they haven't repented of their sin. But the Lord knows. And as a church, we have to be faithful, even if another won't be. But the point here is, Jesus is saying, when you act properly, when you are led by my spirit, the decision of the church is the decision of heaven. And it's the expression of heaven's own will. You see, Jesus promises that the church, when it acts according to his word, acts with heavenly authority. Church discipline is not to be belittled or written off. It is a deadly serious thing. It is an expression of the Lord himself through his church. Also, verse 19, the promise not only of heavenly authority, but of divine action. Jesus says in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you uh, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Context. You can't take this verse out and just say, you know, we just have to agree and God's going to do anything we want. This is in the, in the context of discipline. Uh, again, uh, indicating the action of God. Uh, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And that promise that God acts as his church comes together, as there is an agreement there that God himself acts through that. And then last, the promise of Christ's presence, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, again, easy to take out of context and uh, misuse. It is true where two or three Christians are gathered, Christ is there with them. But the point here, again, is that Christ is present with his church when it acts in this way. The action is not just that of the church. The action is that of Christ through his church. And so Jesus gives these promises of heavenly authority, divine action of his own presence with his church when it acts in this way. Now, the danger with a passage like this is that we'll go to one extreme or the other. It calls for great wisdom. It calls for Spirit-led sensitivity. The danger is that on the one hand, we either become too harsh, uh, out on a witch hunt, you know, out to confront anybody who says anything we might possibly misconstrue, or a church session, you know, that just isn't happy unless it's met its quota of excommunications for the year. Uh, no, that's not it at all. We're not to rush into that. Uh, some Christians, some churches tend to be too harsh on this, too quick to move in this way. But I would suggest the greater danger, certainly in the church in, uh, today in our country, is too great a laxity, too great a willingness to tolerate sin, to allow sin to go unaddressed, to go unconfronted in the church and in one another's lives. We need a spirit-led balance there, a, a wise uh, medium in how we go about that. We need to allow for one another's sins. We're still sinners. We will still sin. Uh, on the other hand, we don't just allow sin to go, to, to grow uh, and run rampant in the church. And so a wise medium is called for here in dealing with one another and addressing one another. And I think this uh, helps us to kind of put it in perspective. And with this, I close. To remember this, when people are right with God, when you and I are walking with the Lord as we should and are right with God, uh, we are apt to be hard on ourselves and easy on others. When we're walking with the Lord, we're, we're more inclined to be harder on ourselves than we are on other people. But 
when we're not right with God, we tend to be easy on ourselves and hard on others. We tend to explain away and rationalize away our own sin, even as we look at others with a microscope. We need to make sure that our hearts are right with God, that we're painfully conscious of our own sins and, and, and busily taken up with dealing with our own sins than we are focused on the sins of others. And that will give us some sense of the perspective and the balance that we ought to have in carrying out this passage that Jesus has given to us, to his church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words that you've given us. And we pray, Father, on the one hand, we wouldn't neglect them, uh, that we would not uh, fail to use, either personally or as a church, this process you've given. Father, give us courage to be forthright enough to go to someone and speak frankly, to reason frankly with our neighbor, uh, to be open and forthright. But, Father, all in love, all, all the while recognizing that we have no righteousness that we have not received, that every one of us is prone to wander, uh, every one of us liable to fall into some sin or another. But, Father, help us to hold each other accountable, help us to encourage each other, uh, give our session wisdom, Lord, in shepherding the church and acting in these ways as well. For we pray it uh, for the glory of Christ and for the well-being of his church. In Jesus' name, amen.